Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal Podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Greetings, this is Rob Hartzler from TSAOG Orthopedics in San Antonio. Today on the podcast, we have the honor of hearing from Dr. Jarrett Woodmass, Assistant Professor of Orthopedic Surgery and a Shoulder and Sports Medicine Specialist at the Pan Am Clinic, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Dr. Woodmass, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So just as a brief editorial commentary, Jarrett Woodmass is a really awesome orthopedic surgeon name. It sounds like, you know, a fake Gomer blog, you know, ortho name like Brick Bowers, you know, or something like that. I think we can expect great things from you just based on name strength alone. (laughs) Thanks. That sounds great. Today, we're going to be discussing your article from the July 2019 issue of the journal entitled, Non-operative management of posterior shoulder instability, an assessment of survival and predictors for conversion to surgery at one to 10 years after diagnosis. So Dr. Woodmass, what did did we know about the natural history of posterior shoulder instability prior to this study? What did you find out in, in your background research for doing this article? The background in terms of the natural history for posterior shoulder is relatively vague. In terms of operative treatment, we've certainly seen from uh, Dr. Bradley's work that patients do very well with uh, capsular labral repair. But in terms of non-surgical management being followed at long-term follow-up, there's very little published data. Yeah, it didn't seem like didn't seem like we we know really almost anything about it. Is that I mean, is that fair to say? Is this sort of I mean, is this going to be one of those studies where it's cited all the time as our you know our knowledge base for what what happens with posterior instability treated non-operatively? I, I think that's fair to say. Um, the ability to follow patients through time is actually very difficult, especially for non-surgical management things. With operative treatment, we can follow these patients through our clinics and see them at two, five, and 10 years. But for the non-surgical patients, these people are often seen one time, sent to physiotherapy, and then they're lost to us. So this project was done through the Rochester Epidemiology Project database, which was very useful and allowed us to follow these patients through time. So when we looked at the Rochester Epidemiology Project database, this allows you to capture all patients within a county, and it's linked to birth records, death records, as well as migration status. So we're able to know whether these people moved away, which is one of the big uh, faults of most databases, and see how long they've been living there. So when we give this data and we're giving... 15, 20-year outcomes, we're actually able to follow them uh, through this time. So I think this is actually quite reliable data. So what do you think are the, the take-home points of this study? What do what we learn about the natural history, or am I, am I going too far there? I think that is fair. We, the main purpose that we wanted to do with this study is that we wanted to see what happened to patients who were treated non-surgically. So we defined uh, an attempt at non-surgical management as someone who has managed that way for at least one year. So we looked at these patients between one year and 10 year after that point, and even though 56% of patients were treated non-surgically initially, we saw that a large percentage of these patients, nearly half, eventually converted to surgery. So I think this tells us a lot about the natural history and that this is a disease of microtrauma that tends to persist over time. And even though the symptoms may not be as severe initially as anterior shoulder instability where they have recurrent dislocations, the symptoms uh, seem to persist over time enough that the patients continue to come back and eventually undergo surgery. Do you think that it's different than natural history posterior instability from anterior instability? Is it, is it that in anterior instability, if you, 
if you make it through an initial period of being young and active and you don't have recurrent instability, you're sort of okay. But in posterior instability, your likelihood is that that phenomenon is going to keep happening in the shoulder. When we look at not, or when we look at anterior shoulder instability, we see that these patients have dislocations and they either have a significant modification of their activities or they have a surgery to allow the shoulder to remain stable. And when we look at the incidence in that population, we see a very high peak incidence around the age of 18. And then that drops off pretty dramatically as people change with their lifestyle and go away from some of these competitive sports. And we see something different with the posterior shoulder instability where the incidence remains high through the second, third, and fourth decade of life. And I think this again goes back to that uh, idea of exposure time and uh, repetitive microtrauma being one of the main culprits as opposed to a frank dislocation of the shoulder. And the other thing is I think these patients are often missed because the diagnosis is difficult. They present with pain, some weakness, or a change in their athletic performance, which is very different than anterior shoulder instability where they actually have a frank dislocation and it's much easier for this to be identified through primary care, emergency departments, or through an orthopedic office. You know, any tip, any tips on making that diagnosis for providers out there? I think the first step is to take a very clear history. Uh, many of these patients come in with a fairly defined history where um, when you first look at them, when they come through the door, they're usually fit, young, male athletes, usually between the ages of 15 and 40. And they often complain of either a change in their athletic performance. And the place that I hear most is associated with any of their weightlifting or weight training exercises is they'll say that activities such as bench press or uh, incline press, military press, they're having significant difficulty with that. So I think the first place is to take some time for a clear history. And then once it's on your radar, then you can perform your physical exam accordingly. Um, and assess for posterior labrum, um, both laxity and for pain. Let's move and talk um, about this idea of the predictor sort of conversion to surgery. Do you find anything interesting in that in that part of the study? Do we have any any more knowledge for counseling patients or trying to decide for operative or non-operative treatment on on who's at risk for going to going on to an operation? Right. When we looked at this population. Uh, and then the predictors for surgery, we, the first and most important thing is to uh, um, disclose that we did not have any significant predictors. So none of these were statistically significant. But we did identify trends with p-values of less than 0.1. And those were identified in patients with an increased BMI, so a BMI greater than 35, as well as non-throwing athletes. Now, when we look at this information, it's likely that the increased BMI is actually related to the um, athletes that are performing this. So it tends to be the weightlifters, uh, as well as rugby players, football players, who, although they are not uh, adipose um, or fat uh, relating to their BMI, they're actually just very muscular, which puts them into that BMI category. So when we looked at our data, we think that that is probably the highest risk patient is someone with an increased BMI associated with muscle mass, and then a non-throwing athlete, which is these football players and rugby players and weightlifters. And this has been previously shown uh, by other researchers that uh, these patients are the most likely to fail as these people who do re repetitive weightlifting. And let's talk a little bit about this issue of progression to osteoarthritis. What did what'd you find there? 
So we identified that there was 14% of patients as a whole that had uh, progression of arthritis. So what I really want to get at is sort of like <clears throat> this idea of the chicken and egg question. You know, are, are these patients, the, the patients that uh, underwent operation seem to have more arthritis? Is that true? The patients who underwent surgery did in fact have uh, a higher percentage that progressed to in their arthritis, correct. Versus non, for successful non-surgical treatment. Correct. So those numbers were so 17% it, versus 8%. Yeah. So it's, so it, it, is that increased progression because they had surgery or is it that they had surgery because they were progr- already progressing towards arthritis and therefore they were symptomatic? Do you understand what I'm getting at? I understand that. And I think that that's an excellent point. So are the patients who are undergoing surgery actually a subset of patients that have a worse disease or they already have arthritis versus the non-surgical patients, which are less severe? Uh, When we looked at this data uh, in depth, what we identified is that there was actually no difference in the rate of arthritis uh, pre uh, in the like in the surgical group which we found very interesting because we were expecting exactly what you said, where we would see that these patients actually had a worse disease at time zero, but we did not identify a higher percentage of patients with arthritis in the surgical group uh, pre-op than the non-surgical group at that same uh, time of diagnosis. Did you look at a lot of the x-rays of these patients? Well, that's another limitation of the study is we did not actually review the x-rays for the study. So these are all based mm. on radiology reads where oh, they we had the initial read that showed either normal cartilage and then on the subsequent reads, if they say that there was a progression of arthritis or have identified arthritis that was not previously identified. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because a lot of times you'll see, you know, tiny marginal osteophytes or other, you know, little subchondral cysts where you'll say, gosh, you know, they've already got, you know, they've got some degenerative disease brewing in there, even though that their primary complaint seems like posterior shoulder instability. At least that's what I see. I think that's an excellent point. Um, That's one of uh, the limitations of the studies that we did not look at that imaging ourselves, but certainly I've seen the exact same thing in my practice as well. And a lot of times we'll try to figure out, you know, these patients with, um, with osteoarthritis with, you know, with B2 glenoids and, um, or let's say, osteoarthritis with static posterior subluxation, you know, is that the end point of the natural history of this? I mean, you know, are those, or what do you think about that? I think that that is likely the case. That certainly is what some of the evidence is starting to suggest. I think one reassuring thing from this study is that that rate may be lower than what we initially thought. When we're looking at this population, we only see that it's less than 15% of patients actually have what we called symptomatic osteoarthritis, where they actually had to present to get another x-ray. Um, and then that x-ray showed that there was a progression of arthritis. And when you're looking out over 10 years, that's a pretty significant finding. We had a minimum five-year follow-up uh, to look at this arthritis data. And so I think the numbers may be less than what we initially thought and that not all of these patients are going on to have what you're describing. Based on the results of the study, has it changed your initial management or your initial counseling of patients who present this way? 
I mean, it, you know, if you just read, let's say, a posterior shoulder instability review article, you know, it'll say um, that initial non-operative management is uh, is the most reasonable treatment. And I just wanted to know if you thought doing this article has changed that at all in your practice. Do you think I it'll be like, um, you know, let's say full thickness rotator cuff tears in healthy, active people? We're more aggressive about just doing uh, doing surgery on those patients because we think that it is um, fa- it alters the natural history or is you know favorable versus non-operative treatment in younger patients. Is, do you think it'll be that way in posterior shoulder instability? So for each of the patients that I see, I do still send them to physiotherapy for a six-week to three-month course after I initially I initially meet them, but that's also an opportunity for me to build a rapport with them and then I see them back. But I do disclose to them the high percentage of patients that eventually require surgery for posterior shoulder instability is the first thing. And the second thing is explaining uh, the outcomes that they can expect from a capsule labral repair, which by Bradley's work has been shown to be uh, very good. And I think that's the reason why we're starting to see much higher rates of surgery in posterior uh, shoulder instability. The patients that undergo surgery they seem to recover very quickly and they get back to the sporting activities that they want to do. And the people who undergo non-surgical management tend to sort of grumble along. And the people that do the best are those that are able to modify their activities to not do the things that were causing the pain in their shoulder in the first place. So I think that the patient has to be on board for some type of activity modification if they're going to have success with non-surgical management. Well, I love this study. I mean, I think that, you know, natural history studies are so important in surgical decision making and in counseling patients. So, you know, I just really congratulate you on the study. And I think it is going to really add to the knowledge base um, in shoulder, you know, in shoulder surgery. Thank you. I really appreciate those comments. And also like to take the opportunity to thank my co-authors who were instrumental in doing the study. So thank you to them as well. Any any closing thoughts or comments on the study? So I think one of the major uh, things to take home from this study is that we need to make a clear a diagnosis. And then when you're following these patients over time, that there is going to be a large percentage of these patients that convert to surgery. Posterior shoulder instability is a disease of microtrauma, and it tends to grumble along. And if they have clinical symptoms and imaging, then I have a low threshold to operate on these patients. And this is especially true with patients uh, such as weightlifters. Uh, and the other thing that is important is that we identified that the risk of having symptomatic arthritis at long-term follow-up is relatively low. This article from the July 2019 issue of the journal entitled Non-Operative Management of Posterior Shoulder Instability, an Assessment of Survival and Predictors for Conversion to Surgery at 1 to 10 Years After Diagnosis can be found on the Arthroscopy Journal's website at arthroscopyjournal.org.